Well, buckle up. We'll be going through the whole Gospel of Matthew, not once, not twice, but in a manner of speaking, three times. You didn't have anything planned, I trust? Besides this, let's uh, pray together. What more wonderful subject could we come to, our Father, than the person, the words, and the works of your dear Son? Your Holy Spirit moved the Apostle Matthew to pen a masterful and glorious portrait of him which has blessed and served Christ's church for two millennia. It has served and is serving us here in this church. Today, we pray you will brighten our eyes with fresh awe, wonder, and love for our Lord Jesus Christ, for the actual Lord Jesus Christ, as he is revealed in your word, your Son, our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this sermon brings us back to the Gospel of Matthew, where we haven't been since last um, August. Uh, Last August, I had surgery and uh, hilarity ensued, and we've been out of Matthew since, and now we're coming back to Matthew. So as we usually do, I'm catching us up today to the whole book of Matthew, and then next time I preach, I intend to bring us up to speed with where we are in Matthew. So um, this sermon will be a little teachy at the start and will end up more sermonic towards the end. So stay with me. Um, And it often is the case that the more text I try to preach, the shorter the sermon. We'll see if that works out today. We'll just see. Uh, All of my uh, verses are going to be from the Legacy Standard Bible. But all that said, let's just dig right in. Uh, Asking about the Gospel of Matthew, by whom and for what? In other words, what's the author and the purpose of this book? So, first author, letter A. The author has been held to be the Apostle Matthew since the very earliest days, and the gospel has many, uh, gives us many reasons that go along with that identification. And he introduces himself in chapter 9. Do look with me there. A lot of this I'll be reading to you, but it's, uh, it's worth looking at how he introduces himself. Chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. We read, and as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew. Now, that's a, that's a, a nickname in all likelihood. Um, the other Gospels call him Levi, but he calls himself Matthew. He alone calls himself Matthew here. A man called Matthew, Matthew sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he stood up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house. Now, that's interesting because when Mark and Luke report this, they say his house but he's the one reporting it, so he just says, at home, at the house, because it's his house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. So this is Jesus' call of him, and as to his being an apostle, Matthew 10, verses 2 and 3. And now the names of the 12 apostles are these, and then we see Peter, James, John, and the others, and in verse 3, Matthew the tax collector. So he's called by Jesus from collecting taxes to be a fully authorized apostle, and he wrote this book by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, what is the purpose, letter B, of this book? We're going to return to this later at length, but I want to show you from the gospel briefly. Uh, It's a wonderful thing when the author himself tells us what his book is about. And Matthew does, if we just put together the very first words and the very last words. So look at the first verse of the gospel. Matthew writes in 1.1, the book of the genealogy, or when I translated it for you, I translated it origin, the book of the origin of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. All of that is, from, is very significant, as I will explain later. But the book of the 
origin of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, uh, son of David, making him the Messiah King, son of Abraham, making him the seed in whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. So now with that in mind, turn to the last words of the book, chapter 28, the very last words, the last uh, verse of the last chapter, verse 20 Jesus, risen from the dead, is commissioning his apostles. He says that they're to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. And he says in verse 20, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. Well, this book is Matthew doing exactly that. This is that. This is Matthew teaching us to keep, to remember, to hold fast all that Jesus commanded. And as I'm going to show you, part of how he did that was he structured his book in a way that lends itself to memorization. It has a very definite structure, a very beautiful and artistic structure that makes it possible to memorize the basic outline of the book. So we'll look at that a couple few times to make sure that we get it. In fact, let's just dig right into that. But before we do, I just want to remind you, this series is called Actual Jesus because there are a lot of Jesuses out there. Jesuses of, of people's personal, uh, my Jesus, my Lord, the Jesus I believe in, well, those are idols. Jesus' we make up are false, phony, don't live, can't save. The only Jesus who lived and lives and saves is the Jesus we learn of in Scripture. And the Gospel of Matthew is one place in which we learn of this actual Jesus at wonderful length. So let's begin looking together and ask the question, told how? How does he structure this? And thankfully, Matthew himself gives us very clear clues that indicate the structure of his gospel. And here's what goes in these blanks. And um, this time, we're going to return to this. So this time, you don't need to turn. Just fill in the blanks and listen as I read. The first is Matthew 7.28. Now, what's happened in Matthew 7.28? What is Matthew 5, 6, and 7? Sermon on the Mount. Very good. And after the concluding words of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew writes, Now it happened that when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Now those words, when Jesus had finished, are repeated verbatim five times in the Gospel of Matthew. And this matters, as I'll show you. So here's the first at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus had finished these words. And then Matthew tells stories of what Jesus does. And then the next time is Matthew 11.1, 1, after chapter 10, and, and what's that? That's Jesus instructing the 12 on their mission to Israel, so it's a chapter full of instruction. And at the end of that, chapter 11.1, 1, he says, now it happened that when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach. So again, when Jesus had finished, and he shifts from a discourse into narrating more of the actions and words of Jesus. The next time that we find that is in Matthew 13.53. Matthew 13.53. It's the third time. What is Matthew 13? It's the mysteries of the kingdom. The parables of the mysteries of the kingdom. It's a chapter full of parables and teaching. And at the end of that chapter, Matthew writes, Now it happened that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. And then Matthew shifts to narrating what Jesus did. The fourth time is in Matthew 19, 1, following what? A discourse. Chapter 18 is all a discourse teaching the future church leaders about matters that would, uh, uh, be, uh, that would relate to the church. 
And at the end of that chapter full of teaching, Matthew writes, chapter 19, 1, Now it happened when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee. This phrase occurs a fifth and final time in Matthew 26, verse 1, following what? Three chapters of teaching. Following his uh, condemnation of the scribes and Pharisees, his prediction of the fall of the temple in Jerusalem, and his parables about his coming and kingdom. And at the end of all that teaching, listen to how Matthew says it. Now it happened that when Jesus had finished all these words... So you see, now at the end of this, he says very emphatically when Jesus had finished all these words, because this is the last teaching of the Lord Jesus that he's going to record. And then chapters 26 through 28 narrate uh, the end of Jesus' life. So what we have here in these five, now when Jesus had finished statements, is we have scenes that Matthew himself has put into his gospel to signal us that this is the construction of the gospel. And how does it fall down? We've got five times now when Jesus had finished teaching, instructing parables or whatnot. What does that give us? It gives us six narrative sections sandwiching five discourse sections. See, so there's a narrative in chapters 1 through 4, then the Sermon on the Mount 5 through 7, and at the end it says, now when Jesus had finished these words, and then another narrative section, then a discourse, another narrative section. So the first and the last are narratives, and then there are five discourses, meaning that there's a, a, a central discourse. I mean, that means something. That tells us something. It's deliberate. It's not Matthew just saying, oh yeah, then I remember this, oh, and then this happened. Oh yeah, here's another thing just at random. No, it's very deliberately dist- uh, structured because with that structure, he gives us something that would be easier for disciples to memorize and know the teaching of Jesus. So, those are the seams. Those are the clues. So let's see how this works out. I'm going to take you on uh, letter B, a lightning overview of the entire gospel by chapters. In other words, we'll go through the gospel in order very, very quickly, uh, but see how his structure falls out. And then we'll come back one more time and look at it a bit slower. Uh, but this is going to be the quick overview to show how that shakes down. So first of all then, in chapters 1 through 4, what do we have? We start with the genealogy of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, his early life, uh, the flight to Egypt, the settling down in Nazareth. We have uh, John's announcement of him. We have his baptism. We have his beginning to collect disciples and his first words. Uh, Chapters 1 through 4, all narrative. And then what do we have in chapters 5 through 7? We have the Sermon on the Mount, all teaching. Three chapters of teaching. So chapters 1 through 4 is narrative. You could write in its narrative of his, uh, his beginning, his early life and his entry into ministry. 5 through 7 is discourse, the Sermon on the Mount. And ends, as I say, with the first seam where Matthew says, Now it happened, 7, 28 and 29, that when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. So, this serves as a hinge, looking backward at the sermon, saying that it overwhelmed them because of the matter of authority. And then in chapters 8 through 9, we have narrative showing Jesus' authority. So you see how Matthew has done this so skillfully. Teaching with authority and now acting with authority. And in between is that scene. Now Jesus finished. Now when Jesus finished. In this case, when Jesus finished um, these words. 
So that's chapters 8 and 9, narrating Jesus, showing his authority, uh, bringing us to chapter 10. What's chapter 10? It's a chapter filled with instruction of the 12, as he sends the 12 out to uh, their mission to Israel, not to the Gentiles, but to the lost sheep of Israel, announcing that kingdom is at hand, preparing them for what's going to come. A chapter full of teaching, chapter 10 is, and it is followed by the usual theme. Uh, Verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Now it happened when Jesus had finished giving instructions, chapter 10, to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Well, then what is 11, 1 through 12, 50? It's narrative talking about the response of the cities and others to his teaching, <clears throat> to this mission, to this ministry. And we see in those chapters 11 and 12, we see uh, the responses to Jesus' responses ranging from John's time of confusion as to why he is where he is and why things are where they are, to the open rejection of people and of cities and of the religious leaders. There's cycles of hostility uh, uh, climaxing in chapter 12 in what? In the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. As the leaders commit the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, saying that Jesus did the miracles he did by the power of Satan. And that brings things to a real climax in this book and brings us to the central point of the book. I told you if there's five discourses and there's one in the middle, right? With two above and two below, there's one in the middle. This is the one in the middle. Chapter 13 is the one in the middle. It's a discourse on the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And here he begins teaching in parables, explains why he is, and he gives a number of parables showing mysteries, new truths about the kingdom of heaven. And at the end of that, we have the usual scene, the third scene, 1353. Now it happened that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. Well, yes, he certainly did, and he was departing from Israel as well. This is a shift in his ministry there. Chapter 13 is a shift in the kingdom program and also begins a shift in his ministry. And we begin seeing that after that chapter of discourse in a section of narrative, 1354 through 1727, where we see rejection uh, of Jesus because of his family, we see rejection of Jesus by the leaders. We see mounting clashes and hostilities. And we see miracles. And here we see, finally, uh, as the leaders had denounced him as being powered by Satan, the disciples are asked who they think he is. And Peter says, you're the Christ of God. You're, you're Christ, the Son of the living God. Just the exact opposite. And Jesus says, I will build my church on this rock of this confession. And that is the first mention of the church as part of the new shift in Jesus' ministry. He prophesies uh, the creation of the church and then immediately says he's got to go to Jerusalem to be crucified. And he introduces that. And you know how horrified Peter is to hear that. He's going to be crucified. He's going to rise from the dead. And Peter just hears the crucified part and says, that's not going to happen. And Jesus says, you're speaking from Satan's perspective. And then we have the Mount of Transfiguration in chapter 17, showing us that contrary to the religious leaders of Israel, God the Father owns Jesus as his own son and says, you listen to what he says. That's chapter 17, and that ends this portion of narrative, bringing us to chapter 18, which is all discourse once again. Jesus teaching the apostles about what they need to do while they're waiting for the kingdom to come. This is a chapter of discourse that mentions church discipline once again, a new element in the teaching of Jesus. And that brings us to the fourth theme, chapter 19, verse 1. 
Now it happened when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, when he'd finished these words of instruction. So that brings us then to the fifth narrative section, uh, the next narrative section, pardon me, chapters 19 through 22. He leaves Galilee for Jerusalem, where he said he would be crucified. He uh, performs healings. He enters Jerusalem, in fact, uh, the triumphal entry, as we call it. He cleanses the temple, gives parables, and continues to clash more and more hostily and openly with the religious leaders, leading to the fifth and final discourse, chapters 23 through 25. Now you see, the first discourse was three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Next was one chapter. Next was one chapter. Next was one chapter. And now the last one is once again three chapters. Uh, Woes to the scribes and Pharisees prophesies the coming judgment of Jerusalem and his coming and the coming of his kingdom. And for the fifth and final time we read in chapter 26, verse 1, now it happened that when Jesus had finished all these words, he's done with the teaching sections, now the final narrative of the gospel, the sixth portion, uh, chapters 26 through 28, where he's betrayed, uh, mock trial, crucified, buried, rises from the dead, and commissions the disciples. And that is, of course, narrative. So you see, there's, there's a whirlwind tour of Matthew, and you see he very deliberately tells it in that portion. Narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse. The central discourse is chapter 13, and the end pieces are chapters 1 through 4 and 26 through 28. That's significant, as I'll show you in greater length in just a moment. But just notice it. Now, I've given you, given you a snapshot to show what this looks like. And, of course, what do you figure? Uh, look at A, and I say N, 1 through 4. What do you figure N means? Exactly right. <clears throat> and B, D, 5 through 7. What do you figure D means? Ah, you are a sharp bunch. You are a sharp bunch. That's why I have to bring my A game. So, you see, we've got A, B, C, D, E, and F. And then answering that, an inverted parallelism. It's called a chiasm, or it's also called an inverted parallelism. Because you see, it goes and then it counts back. So A through F, and then E prime, D prime, C prime, B prime, A prime. All of it alternating between narrative and discourse. And the parts that stand out then are A and A prime and F. Do you see that? F being the central portion, and A and A prime being the framing portions. So in, in, a, in a literary structure like this, it's not that every portion, everything corresponds to its an answering member, but there are points of contact or, or contrast, which I'll demonstrate to you. You may have heard some of them as we went through, I hope, but I'll show you in greater detail um, that there are points of uh, either of correspondence or even of irony and contrast between the sections. But often, uh, the point of a structure like this is to stress both the center and the frame. So I'll show you. A and A prime are key. F is key, the central chapter, Matthew 13, the parables. So that said, then, let's go through this a little more leisurely little more leisurely. It is 28 chapters. So the gospel of King Jesus the Messiah unfolded by structure. Uh, 
So we just looked at it in order of chapters. Now let's look in order of structure, and we will pair A and A prime, and B and B prime. Do you see what I'm saying? We'll pair the matching elements together, and that will leave us ending where? F. So, beginning with A and A prime, we have the king's preparation in chapters 1 through 4, and the king's consummation in chapters 26 through 28. Don't you see just at a, a glance or the listen how those answer to each other? The first section sets out Jesus' ministry. The final section consummates Jesus' ministry, for which he was prepared in the first section. So let's talk first of, and then about the first narrative, um, which is chapters 1 through 4. And we'll be brief, really, uh, because we're going to return to this, to A and A prime. So we'll be very brief. So what do we have in 1 uh, through 4? We have the introduction of Jesus as the Davidic Messiah, as the son of Abraham in whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. Uh, We see what? This is interesting. We see the Jewish leaders helping who? A half-Jew try to kill Jesus. The Jewish leaders help a half-Jew try to kill Jesus, and we see Jesus in this whole section, we see him uh, tested by uh, Satan in the desert. We see him attested by his father at the baptism, who says this is his beloved son in whom he's well pleased, and he starts his ministry gathering his disciples. That's chapters 1 through 4. How do, uh, how's the corresponding narrative answer to that, chapters 26 through 28? Well, if the Jewish leaders helped a half-Gentile try to kill Jesus, what do the Jewish leaders do in this section? They help a Gentile leader, they get a Gentile leader, they use a Gentile leader to kill Jesus. You see the answering members there? And he is uh, introduced in the first section as being born to save his people from their sins, but here he is crucified, and as he hangs, what do they mock him with? You saved others, you can't save yourself. That theme comes up again. In the first section, what had he done? He'd gathered disciples. What happens in the final section? His disciples scatter. Ah, but what do we see in the first section? He began his ministry, and in the last section, he's resurrected from the dead and has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he commissions his disciples to go to all the families of the earth and make disciples. Now, I'll show you in more detail, but I hope you just see, even in that quick glance, yeah, these really do answer to each other. They really do mirror each other. Second pairing, B and B prime, the king's manifesto and the king's manifestation. Chapters 1 through 5, Sermon on the Mount, where he lays down his kingdom manifesto. Take a look there with me, because I want to make some things stand out to you. Turn to Matthew 5. And how does he begin the Sermon on the Mount? You probably do remember, but he begins teaching his disciples and saying in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. How many times does he say blessed? Nine times he, he, he pronounces a blessing. He begins this sermon with blessings, but he has condemnation directly and indirectly for the religious leaders of the day. Look at verse 20. He says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what is implicit there? A condemnation of the scribes and Pharisees and their externalistic, legalistic approach to religion 
And he says, you need to have a righteousness that surpasses what they have. And what does he tell them to pray? Just want to single one thing out. Chapter 6, verse 10, your kingdom come. The kingdom is seen as future, but they're taught to pray that it come. And how does he end this sermon? He warns of false prophets, and you see a surprising judgment by him. Verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And he says, every tree, you'll know them by their fruit. If they don't produce good fruit, they'll be thrown into the fire. And then he gives this alarming warning in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and do all these wonders and miracles? And I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And then he closes with the thought that we've got to build our lives on his words or else we will fall under God's judgment. Now, this is, this is surprising. These, these are people who believe that they're in the kingdom and they expect to be commended and brought in with great honors and laurels. And instead, he says, I don't even know you. Depart and sends them to the eternal fire. So that's the first uh, discourse. That's the king's manifesto, which overwhelms the listeners by his authority. Now let's consider the second. Turn to chapter 23. Remember in Matthew 5, he had condemned the formalistic righteousness and hypocrisy of the uh, scribes and Pharisees by saying that our righteousness must surpass theirs. What does he say here in chapter 23, the answering part? He says, uh, we'll look at verses 2 through 5. The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. What's that? Somebody who preaches and doesn't practice. It's a hypocrite. It's hypocrisy. That's exactly right. Verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. But you remember that? We saw that again and again in the Sermon on the Mount, don't we? The whole, didn't we? He denounces over and over again this idea that by some externalism you can check the box, even though your heart is still seething with sin, hostile to God, and totally self-focused. So he denounces them the same way he did in the Sermon on the Mount. How did the Sermon on the Mount begin? Again, remind me, what's the first word he says in the sermon? Blessed is the first word he says in the sermon. What do we see here in Matthew 23, 13 and following? Woe to you. 15, woe to you. 16, woe to you. Some seven or eight times. What are those? those are curses. Those are the opposite of blessing. You see how these parts answer to each other. Disciples are pronounced blessed, but these hypocrites who are about to condemn and crucify him, who have rejected him, he pronounces woes on them. Uh, And so also remember, um, he prophesies here in a way that parallels what we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, the surprising judgment. First in chapter 24, the disciples are showing him all these lovely structures in the temple, and Jesus says, you know what? There's not a stone here, it won't be thrown down. Well, not a stone will be left standing on another stone. What a surprise, as surprising as the judgment of the Sermon on the Mount. And he goes on to talk about how he will return, and well, Jerusalem will fall, and, and Israel will be judged, and he will return. And in chapters, uh, chapters 24 and 25, he tells parables and teaching that talk about 
the coming of the kingdom of the Son of Man. And as in chapter 7, it includes a great surprise. You remember in Matthew 25, where Jesus says this part about that you, uh, you, to the point that you did it to the least of these, you did it to me, to the point that you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. You remember that? What does he say to those on his left? That they didn't visit him in prison. They didn't show him care and, and mercy. And he says, to the extent that you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And what do they say? When didn't we do that? In other words, they absolutely fully expect to be entering the kingdom. Just like in chapter 7. Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and do miracles in your name? It's a surprising judgment. Those who think they're in end up being out. And so then he also ends this section speaking of his coming kingdom. Chapter 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my Father, enter the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What did he told his disciples to pray in Matthew 6, the first part? Thy kingdom come and what is he teaching about here in the answering part verse uh, chapter 25 the coming of the kingdom when the kingdom comes so you see they're very much answer to each other Uh, the next section c and c prime the king's authority displayed so let's go back to the narrative in chapters 8 and 9 you remember the seam ended by saying people were overwhelmed at the authority that he shows and that is the issue of this section in fact four times in this section, the word authority is used and mentioned. Uh, when he, uh, the centurion asked him to heal his slave, and Jesus uh, says, you're wanting me to come and heal him? And the centurion says, oh, you don't need to do that. You just say the word, because what does he say? Chapter 8, verse 9, I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. He recognizes Jesus' authority just with a word to heal his So this issue of authority comes up in this section. A second time, chapter 9, verse 6, when he forgives the sins of the paralytic. And the scribes and Pharisees are going, this is blasphemy, you can't do that. And Jesus says in verse 6, but so that you may know that what? The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then again in chapter 9, verse 8, when the crowd saw this, they were afraid and glorified God who had given this authority to men. And then it happens a fourth time in chapter 10, verse 1, where sending out his apostles, he gives them authority. He's the one who has authority, and they receive it as a gift from him. He's the one who has the authority. And so you see, authority is a big, a big theme in this section, and this section demonstrates his authority. He demonstrates his authority to heal an un- uncurable leper by a touch, or to heal the centurion slave by a word at a distance. But also remember he shows his authority in the natural realm, the supernatural realm, and the spiritual realm. In the natural realm, a windstorm has kicked up on the lake, and Jesus just tells it to shut up and stop. And like that, the wind stops blowing, and the water calms down, which should have taken minutes or hours, but instantly it calms down. When Jesus speaks, he speaks with authority. And then again in the supernatural realm, uh, the legion demons come down and attack them, terrified all the inhabitants of the area, but Jesus just sends them yelping like scalded dogs into the pigs where they die. So he's a, he shows authority in the natural realm, the supernatural realm, and then the spiritual realm as he forgives the sins of 
of this paralyzed man, which is something only God can do. Uh, because they weren't sins committed against him, except they were because he's God, and all sins are committed against God. So he forgives these sins, showing his authority and proving his authority by giving the man the ability to walk. So the issue in this section is authority. And also, we have two other notes I want to single out to you. Uh, The cost of discipleship. We've got some disciples who come up to Jesus and get kind of a brusque greeting from him. You could say, chapter 8, verse 19, a scribe decides that he's going to follow Jesus, and he announces that to Jesus. And verse 20, Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So another disciple comes up and says, let me go bury my father. And Jesus says, follow me. Let the dead bury their dead. Just keep that in mind. We'll see if there's an answering part in the, next, in the answering section. Hint, there is. And then you also see he heals two blind men. Chapter 927. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. Try to keep those words somewhere in your mind. Have mercy on us, son of David. And Jesus heals the two blind men. Well, then what do we see in the corresponding narrative? We see the issue of authority raised again. In fact, four times again the word authority is used. Chapter 21, verses 23 and 24. He's cleansed the temple, and when he enters the temple again, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he's teaching, and they splutter By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? One, two. Jesus answered and said to them, I'll ask you one thing also, which if you tell me, I'll also tell you by what authority I do these things. And they don't like his question and they don't want to answer it. And so verse 27, they said, well, we don't know where John got his authority, his baptism. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Four times in each answering section. Coincidence? I think not. He displays his authority in this section in a number of ways. He interprets the law authoritatively on divorce, on what this uh, rich young ruler can and cannot do to inherit eternal life. He announces his coming crucifixion and resurrection, not as something that is happening to him, but something he's going forward to. And uh, he knows and is in on and is pursuing the whole plan. And in this section also is his triumphal entry Uh, where he is greeted with Hosanna to the son of David. He cleanses the temple as if he owned it. Cleanses the temple as if he owned it and faces down the leader's challenge. uh, So the issue of authority is found in both sets. What about the cost of discipleship? Remember his response uh, to those two who wanted to be disciples. That comes up again in chapter 19, verses 27 through 29, where Peter says, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. Uh, what then will there be for us? And Jesus tells them that they'll sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's them. And then he says in 29, and everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive 100 times as much and will inherit eternal life. So you see the issue is kind of raised in the first section and it's finished in the second section. Oh, and there was one more thing. What was the other thing I, I told you to mention? Jesus heals two blind men who come after him and they they cry what? They cry, uh, have mercy on us, son of David. In this section, he heals two blind men. Chapter 20, verses 29 through 34. They 
hear that he passes by and they cry out and they say what? Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Same words, same cry. Two blind men and he heals them. So that is C and C prime. Leads us then to D and D prime, which is a discourse. As Jesus instructs the kingdom's herald to Israel. And they're to go out and proclaim what? That the kingdom of the, heaven is at, of, of the heavens is at hand. And, and to whom are they to go? Israel only. The lost sheep of the tribes of Israel don't go the way of the Gentiles. Verses 5 and 6. Only the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And what are they to do if the people don't accept their teaching? Dust the dust off their feet as they leave that town and go someplace else. Well, what about the corresponding discourse in chapter 18? Well, in chapter 10, they go out saying the kingdom is at hand. In chapter 18, the kingdom is no longer at hand. In fact, he never, uh, he never says this again. He never says this again in, in the second half of Matthew. Uh, announces the kingdom is being at hand. The kingdom has been postponed, if you will. Its coming has been delayed. And so what do they do while they're waiting for the kingdom to come? Well, chapter 16 said he's going to build a church. Chapter 18 teaches them, them some items they'll need to know about uh, waiting for the church. And one thing is to protect and seek Christ's sheep. Oh, he'd mentioned sheep in chapter 10, didn't he? But what was chapter 10? Lost sheep of the house of Israel. Here the sheep, we're not told who they are. Because, in fact, we know that they're not just Israel. They're Gentiles also. And uh, what does he say to do to a person? So if somebody sins, reprove him. And if he doesn't listen, take a couple of witnesses and reprove him. If he doesn't listen to them, tell to the church. And the church reproves them. And what if he doesn't listen to the church? What then? Put him out of the church, which is kind of like what? Dusting the dust off your feet. Well, that's what he told the apostles to do in chapter 10 to people who wouldn't receive their words. And that's what he tells the apostles to do in chapter 18 to people in church who won't receive the word of God. Put them out of the church of God. So do you see correspondences? Yes, they're very definite and and designed correspondences in how Matthew tells us what Jesus in fact did and taught. Leading us to E and E prime, the king rejected in both of those sections king rejected the narrative in chapter 11 through 12. What do we see there? Well, in the first narrative, John is in prison, and we see responses to Jesus, starting with John, who's very confused by where things are, and having a weak moment. Jesus speaks to him, and he speaks of him. But from John's friendly confusion, we escalate to the cities rejecting the message of Jesus, and we come to clashes with the religious leaders, and these escalate in cycles that culminate in uh, the unpardonable sin which the leaders commit, the blasphemies of the Holy Spirit, saying that Jesus did what Jesus did by the power of Satan. And we end in chapter, go ahead and turn to chapter 12 with me. The last part of this section, verses 46 and following, He's still speaking to the people. Behold, his brother, mother and his brothers are standing where? Outside. Not with his disciples. They're outside. And they want him to leave his disciples to speak to them. 
But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he says, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. At this point, not even his family is with him. So, keeping that in mind, you know, chapter 13 is the discourse. So let's start the next narrative section, chapter uh, 14. Well, actually, it it starts, pardon me, um, with, oops, I shouldn't have put my note away yet. Starts with 1354. I should have known that. Chapter 1354. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astounded and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not the carpenter's, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. So isn't it interesting? The last part of the preceding section ends with him in effect rejecting his family who's not walking with him. And the next section starts with him rejected because of his family. Because of his family. Because somebody of of such plain origins can't be anyone special, surely. And he's rejected on on that account. Uh, In chapter 11, John's in, in prison. In chapter 14, what happens to John? He's executed. So the story of John is finished. And there's a controversy in the first part about traditional laws, walking through the wheat fields, eating wheat. There's controversies about traditional laws again in this section. In the first section, he is rejected as doing his power by whom? By Beelzebul, by the the prince of demons. But look at chapter 16. And Jesus asked them, who the Son of Man is, and verse 15, who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So we see the profession of the rejecting nation back in chapter 12. Now we see the confession of the believing church in the mouth of Simon Peter. You're not anything of Satan. You are the Son of God. And Jesus pronounces him blessed as he had pronounced the rejecting cities cursed by saying woe to them for not repenting at the preaching of him and his uh, apostles. So uh, he's confessed as Christ, and he announces that he's going to build the church. This is a brand new thing, never heard of before, uh, not contained in the whole Old Testament at all. Jesus is going to build his church, and he tells him he's going to go to Jerusalem and die. I believe this is the first announcement of that in verses 21 following, outright that he's going to go, be rejected, be killed, and on the third day be raised. And it's interesting, Peter rebukes him, and Jesus says, you're the one who's thinking Satan's thoughts right now. So there's a real answering of the two parts to each other by design. And though he's been rejected by men in chapters 11 and 12, which is uh, E, he is affirmed by God in chapter 17, which is E prime. He's transfigured, and God says what in verse 5? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jewish leaders are saying, this is one powered by Satan, by Beelzebub. God says, this is my son. The Jewish leaders say, reject him, he's wicked. God says, listen to him, he's beloved. 
So you see these parts, once again, answer to each other very much by design, which leads us to the center of the whole gospel, and that's chapter 13. And chapter 13, as I say, we'll we'll say this briefly because we're going to return to it, is about the mystery parables of the kingdom, that God's kingdom program shifts. The kingdom is still going to come and still be centered in Jerusalem and still be ruled over by Christ, but not now, not yet. No longer does Jesus say it's at hand. It's, it's been uh, delayed until the time of the choosing of the Father. And these parables explain about that, as, as we'll see. I, I won't say more because we're going to talk about it. Uh, in fact, we're going to talk about it right now. But before we do, I just, just hope you've seen that there is, in Matthew's very deliberate design, there is this inverted parallelism. And if we read it and think about it, I hope you, as I suggest in the letter, read the Gospel of Matthew. You're getting a lot more out of this if you did. Um, It gives us a way to, in our minds, fix the works and the words of the Lord Jesus and the teaching of Jesus in this Gospel. So, I say, by that structure then, by this inverted parallelism, the stress is on the two outer pieces and the centerpiece. Now let's, let's look at those then, and it's going to tell us, beyond what we already saw in the first verse and the end verse, specifically what, Jesus, what Matthew is writing this gospel to give us about Jesus, to explain about Jesus. So first we see, uh, looking at his grand purpose and message, Roman numeral three, his grand purpose and message. <clears throat> and we see that in the center which is Matthew 13. You turn there, I'll make a few references to it. Matthew 13. Now, before this and up to this point, the kingdom had been announced to Israel exclusively by design as being at hand. But the leaders of Israel, well, all Israel, with the spokesmen, the leaders, have been rejecting him. People from all over the place have been not responding to the preaching. And so... uh, there's going to be a shift in God's kingdom program. Now, notice the first parable. Uh, You know the parable. Let me just remind you of it. What is sown? Seed is sown. How many different kinds of seed? Just one kind of seed. Only one kind of seed. But it lands on how many kinds of soil? Four kinds of soil. And of those four, how many produce fruit? Just one. What percentage is that? It's 25%. So a lot of seed is sown, but something grows, which is a gradual process, and it only grows in one soil. So the picture here now is the emphasis is not going to be on a national movement, which by all rights should have happened. The whole nation should have repented and believed in Jesus. It was as plain as the nose on my face, plainer. Yet they did not. So now the shift is how individuals respond to the word of God. And don't expect everybody to respond. One in four is what Jesus gives in his parable. But the response of the individual who must hang on to the word and not be choked by weeds and not be driven away by persecution, uh, the response of the individual is everything. And notice uh, how he explains these parables. Look at verse 11. They say, why do you speak to them in parables? Because this hasn't been the, the nature of his ministry heretofore. 
I answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets. Well, that's the ESV. Um, A better translation is the mysteries. Secrets is not bad, but it's the Greek word mysteria, from which we get the word mystery. The mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, But to them it's not been given. Now, why are they called mysteries? Because they had not been revealed in the Old Testament. This is a new revelation. This is a new element in the teaching of Jesus. What do you see about the kingdom of God in the Old Testament? You see that the the king comes and God conquers his enemies. The king comes. Israel is brought to repentance. And the kingdom is set up. God's enemies are crushed very dramatically and very finely. And the kingdom is set up, centered in Jerusalem, and eventually rules over the entire world. And the world worships God at Jerusalem. Well, that's the kingdom of God. But that's not going to happen now. That's not going to happen now. There is something unrevealed going to happen now. And that unrevealed thing is first named in chapter 16. And what's that unrevealed thing? The church. So what happens now to God's kingdom program? Does he cancel it? Oh, no, not at all. He doesn't cancel it at all. But he is going to judge Israel. Look at verses 14 and 15. In their case... The prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. Who's this people? Californians? Well, probably. But is that what Jesus meant? Israelites. Jews. This is a judgment on Israel that he now teaches of a new phase in God's kingdom program and explains it in parables. And so, so far from coming from outside with a dramatic conquering of all God's enemy nations and and persons and a setting up of the throne in Jerusalem. So far from that, what's the characteristic of this period? Well, it's going to be like wheat growing up among tares. Look-alike plants, all growing up at the same time together. And it is uh, going to um, grow like a mustard seed. But what's going to stop this period? Let's return to the wheat and the tares. Look at um, verses 24 through 30. Verse 24, this is a man who sowed good seed in his field, but other seed was sown. And so they grew up together. And the man says, leave it until the harvest. What does that all mean? Well, Jesus explains it in verse 37 and following. The one who sows the good seed in this case is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. Now, you see, the kingdom is not here. It's not already not yet. It's just not yet. It's not here at all. But what is here? Sons of the kingdom. So what are we doing now? We are, there's a perfect word I want, we are, what, what do they do to get people into the army? I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sure one of you is saying the word that I want. Um, anyway, conscribing or, or soliciting people to, to join the kingdom of God. Become citizens of the still future kingdom of God. Sons of the kingdom, he says. But look on. Verse 39, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They'll gather out all lawbreakers and causes of sin and throw them into the fiery furnace. Then the righteous will shine forth. But this is future. This is not about to happen. The course of this age is the growing up of the mixture. Sons of the kingdom and sons of the evil one. The harvest at the end, you see this is very different than what he's been teaching heretofore. Um, Also, what is the progress of the kingdom likened to? Well, it's likened to a mustard seed. Planted small, but gradually grows into a very large plant. 
Or what's it likened to? Leaven. Put a little bit in a large lump of dough and eventually it spreads. You see? So this is a very different view of this phase of the kingdom than what had been being announced prior to the rejection by and of Israel. Uh, The kingdom is like treasure hidden in a field. You've got to find it. It's not ruling over the world. You've got to find it and become a member of that kingdom. It's like a pearl beyond price that it's worth selling everything you've got just so long as you can get that pearl. You see, And that's what Jesus teaches in this chapter. Uh, And that's why this is the key. Why is this the key? Why was all that so important? You you may say, oh, I've known this in Sunday school. Well, they didn't. Why is it so important? Because in, in reporting what Jesus taught, Matthew is answering the pressing questions of his readers and his hearers. And, and what are those pressing questions? Well, they're wondering, of course, if Jesus is the Messiah, then why isn't the kingdom here? If he's the Messiah, we should be in the kingdom, right? Why is it future? And if it's not here, then what's going on now? What is the program? How can you explain to me why we don't, don't see a purified earth and, and why things seem to keep going on in a way of, of so much wickedness? And what's God going to do about it? And, and during this period, what should we be doing? And why is Israel still believing, disbelieving? Why is it still disbelieving? See, all those questions are answered in these parables. What should we be doing? Sowing seed. How much? Lots of it. Because only one-fourth is going to be receptive. So sow lots of seed and expect it to take time to grow. And you sell everything so that you can be, uh, belong to Christ. You can have Christ and be a citizen of his kingdom. So all that is answered by this section, this central section. And they needed to understand that. And this section makes that clear. Do you see? Now finally, what about the end members? Chapters 1 through 4 and chapters 26 through 28. Well, let's begin with the first a little more fully. Verse 1 says the book of the genealogy. Well, really the word is Genesis. What does that sound like? Genesis. What does that sound like? Genesis. There's a reason for that. It's the Greek word from whence we get this. So he immediately gets in their minds to put their heads back in Genesis as he talks about the origin. I don't think it's just about the genealogy. It's about his his start. Chapters 1 through 4 is his start. Starting with his genealogy, but also his uh, mother and his stepfather and his hometown and his childhood and the beginning of his ministry. It's all in that section. But he says, so the book of the, the, the origin of Jesus Christ, Savior Messiah. Look, son of David. What's the son of David? Well, let, let's back up a step. What do we read about in Genesis that affects us sinners? After the fall, as God is handing out his curses, he says to the woman, he says to the serpent, I'll put hostility between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. She will crush you on the head. She will crush your seed on the head. He, her seed, will crush you on the head. So there's a seed of the woman mentioned in Genesis who's going to crush the serpent's head. What's another seed? Abraham is told that in his seed, what? All the families of the earth will be blessed. Same seed. And David is told he will never lack a seed to sit on the throne of Judah. Three seeds, one seed. Who's that seed? Verse 1 tells us it's Jesus. Jesus is the seed of the woman who will crush Satan's head. How? The second part's going to tell us how. He's going to be the seed of Abraham and who all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. How? The second part's going to tell us how. 
And he's going to sit on David's throne with all authority in heaven and on earth. How? Second part's going to tell us how. So that's just the first verse. But let's look on a little bit. Look at chapter 1, verse 20. The angel said, Joseph, son of David, marry Mary, basically, because what's been conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. She'll have a son. You'll call his name Jesus, for he will, what? Save his people from their sin. And this was to fulfill Isaiah 7.14, which says his name will be called Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So keep this in mind. Keep this in mind. Also in this section, the Jewish leaders help a half-Jew try to kill Jesus, but he fails. But in this section, he commits himself to fulfill all righteousness. When does that happen? John the Baptist, the baptism. John's horrified to see him coming to him. You should baptize me. And Jesus says, let us fulfill all righteousness. Well, this is who he is. He says that in chapter 3, and then he shows that in chapter 4, doesn't he? As he is tested by the tester, by the devil in the desert, starving at his weakest point physically, the devil barrages him, and he stands up committed to God's worship and, and trusting God and honoring God no matter what. This is very important to keep in mind in this first section. And then he begins teaching. He begins gathering disciples. That's all in chapters 1 through 4. What happens in the last section then? Well, is he fiercely tested in this section? Yes, he does. does. Yes, he is. I tried to combine does and is. Yes, he is tested in this section. Where is he tested? Well, I recall in the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he prays to where it's like drops of blood coming off of him. And he is saying, if this, if possible, may this cut pass for me. But nonetheless, what does he say? Not my will, but yours be done. Just as in the first section, he told John, let us fulfill all righteousness. Just as in the first section, he said to Satan, be gone. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only will you serve. So it answers to each other. He's tested, and where Adam failed, he succeeds. Um, in the first section, the Jews helped a half-Jew, King Herod was an Edomite, called a half-Jew, try to kill Jesus. But in the second section, the Jews actually use a full-on Gentile and actually do kill Jesus. And what does the angel say to name him Jesus? Because he will what? Save his people. And as his people, the Jews, have rejected him and he hangs on the cross, what do his people say to him? Chapter 26, verses 39 following. You who are going to destroy the sanctuary and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God... Which God said in chapter 3, the first part, he is. But like Satan, they say, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, are mocking him and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. But here's the irony. And this is, this is a correspondence of paradox and of irony. This is him saving others. If he did save himself, what would he not do? save others. He wouldn't save his people from his sins. But this is exactly what he did to save others. Submit himself to the Father's will, become obedient to the point of death. Yes, death on the cross, as Paul says. And in, again, more biting, unconscious irony, they say, he trusts in God, let God rescue him now if he delights in him. 
Well, God said he delighted in him in chapter 3, verse 17. He said it again in chapter 17, but he said it in the first section, and here he still delights in him, but he's bearing sin. In chapter 4, he gathered his disciples. In this section, they scatter. In chapter 3, God spoke of his delight in Jesus, but in this chapter, God is silent. Jesus cries out, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And God says, and this is meant to arrest us because this is how he saves his people from their sins. This is him committing himself to do the will of his father as he hangs on the cross in fulfillment of Isaiah 53 and other scripture, bearing the sins of his people, making atonement for every one of God's elect, full, full atonement for them. And Messiah dies But that's not the end of the story. And here's where everything comes uh, home. He is resurrected bodily. He walks out of the tomb. And let's just look at the, the closing words of this gospel. Chapter 28. Turn there, but listen to me for just a moment. So what do we see in the opening chapters? He is the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. He is the seed of David who would sit on the throne and have authority to rule God's kingdom. He is the seed of Abraham in whom all the families of the earth, not just Israel, would be blessed. Okay, what do we see in these verses? Oh, and also, he is, what was his other name from Isaiah 7? Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And what do we see here? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Well, that should cover David's throne. And this is because of his obeying the Father's will and being crucified. All authority has been given to Jesus, the human mediator, the God-man in heaven and on earth. And so he says, go therefore and make disciples of all Israel. What does he say? All the families of the earth, all the nations, as Abraham had said, disciples of him, that they might be blessed in him, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. You say, well, pastor, you you mentioned a third theme, and I don't see that there, the Emmanuel theme. But wait, there's more. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. As we carry out God's program, Christ is with us. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And thus, you see, by his beautiful crafting, the gospel ends up fulfilling and consummating everything with which it starts. So, having said all that then, the question to us that the Gospel of Matthew puts, first of all, is, is this Jesus our Jesus by repentant faith? You look at all that teaching, you say, well, my Jesus wouldn't say anything like that. Well, then this is not your Jesus. You have a Jesus who's dead, and he's an idol, and he can't save you. But if you want to be saved and to know God, this needs to be your Jesus because this is the only Jesus who saves by obeying the Father's will, by offering his soul uh, an atonement for the sins of his people. And so, is this your Jesus? Is this our Jesus by repentant faith? And secondly, have we received the word in good soil? Or do you, do you sit in church Sunday after Sunday just having uh, the, the birds pick it up? As soon as it's preached, the seeds are peck, 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 peck. Or as soon as you leave, you're back to work and everything else you really care about, and it chokes out the word. Or if a little pressure comes on, people make fun of you because you're being religious, uh, do you wither then? 
or do you hold fast the word? Let the roots dig in deep and bear much fruit. That's the question to us. Have we sold everything to possess this pearl beyond price? That's the question to us. Thirdly, are we being discipled and doing what we can to make disciples? Because that is God's program for this age. Go into all the nations and make disciples, baptizing and teaching them to keep everything I've commanded you. Are we being discipled? And are we doing what we can to reach out with the gospel? And finally, do we trust in, do we glory in, do we seek the presence Jesus promised to be with us as we do his will until the consummation of the age? Is that presence our, uh, our goal and our delight? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this masterful portrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for what a wonderful living Savior he is. And we pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit of God will build in us great love and ardor for him and a desire above all to give and to be given for him and for his glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So now we're about